Um, what an exciting couple of weeks here at Riverstone. Over a dozen people, as you heard, were baptized last week. Real food for communion this morning. Um, you know what would make it even more exciting? Another long list of names in the book of Nehemiah. So I am excited. You know, the first time I preached here, Pastor Austin gave me this long list in Ezra chapter 2 of over 100 names in Scripture. And I must have passed the test somewhere because not only did it get me a job, but um, it also got me another almost identical list of long names in Nehemiah chapter 7 today. So are you excited? Yes. I'm sure you are. Yeah, right. Um, well, you should be because, as I said before, this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And Nehemiah 7 is part of all Scripture. It's inspired. It's profitable for teaching, for preaching, for training in righteousness, to help equip you for every good work. And you know what the Bible says just two verses after this? It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Because the Bible is God's word, it is inspired and it is profitable, profitable. I am required as a pastor to preach it to you. And you're going to be amazed at what great spiritual insight you come away with from a long list of names today, Lord willing. Hopefully you won't be surprised because this is spiritually profitable. You know that. But you'll be amazed at what God can teach us even in a very difficult text of Scripture. Even if it looks tough from the outside, there's something great in this text for us. Now before we get to the actual text in Nehemiah 7, I want to take a brief minute and just review where we've been so far. We've been studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, really one book together, broken up into two parts. We've been studying this since September of last year. And even though there are two books in the Bible, they really tell the story, one story, of the Israelites' return from exile. Up on the screen, you see the major movements of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra 1-6 to told the story of the first wave of returnees. The Israelites were in exile for 70 years but just as God had promised them, after 70 years of that discipline, they were brought back into the land. And Ezra 1 to 6 tells us about the Israelites' efforts to rebuild the temple once they got back into their homeland. Ezra 2, as you might remember, was that first really long list of names of all the families and all the individuals who came in that first wave of returnees. The rest of the book of Ezra jumps forward in time from chapter 7 to 10, and it tells a story of another return and how the people struggled in their sin once they got back into the land. Then there's another leap forward in time, Nehemiah 1 to 7. It tells a story of another return, yet a third one, this time under Nehemiah. And Nehemiah leads the people to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. The last half of Nehemiah, which we're going to get to beginning next week, will show the people struggling in their sin once again now that the wall has been rebuilt. So what you can see is that these two halves of these books mirror each other. The first half of Ezra, rebuilding the temple. First half of Nehemiah, rebuilding the city and the wall. Second half of Ezra, the community struggles with sin as they seek to apply God's law to their lives. 
Second half of Nehemiah, the community struggles with sin as they seek to apply God's law to their lives. Nehemiah 7, our passage today, acts as a kind of a hinge between these two major parts of the book. It reflects backwards, reflecting back on Ezra chapter 2, but it also points us forward to the rest of this book and what we're about to see. Now, where we last left off at the end of Nehemiah 6, the wall project has been completed. It took 52 days, but Nehemiah and the people finished building that wall. And that's where the text begins in Nehemiah 7. Let's read verses 1 to 4. This is the easy part of chapter 7. Now, when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem. For he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and their houses were not yet built. Two primary things catch my attention here. First, Nehemiah is intensely practical. The walls around the city have been built, but they still needed to be guarded. There aren't a lot of people living in the city yet. It's a mostly empty city, even though it's built. We're going to see how the Israelites solved that problem later in chapter 11 of Nehemiah. But notice how they prioritize the building of the walls instead of building their own homes in that city. That tells you something about the commitment of these people. It would be like a church committing to not take out mortgages on their own home until they paid off the mortgage of their own building of the church. I mean, that, that's a sacrificial commitment that we see here. But Nehemiah is intensely practical. He appoints his brother and he appoints another guy in charge of the city, makes sure the gates are only open at certain times all day, and when they're closed, they are bolted shut. There are guards stationed all around the city. When they were building these walls, opposition was constant. There were people trying to stop them every moment of the way. So it's important that they have these guards set up and make sure that the, the gates are secure so that way that opposition doesn't continue to come in and threaten the city. Now the second thing that catches my attention, not just Nehemiah is intensely practical, but this is by far the most important of the two. Nehemiah is intensely spiritual. In verse 1, right after he sets the doors to the city, it says he appoints the gatekeepers, and that's practical. Gates need gatekeepers. But then it says in the same breath that he appoints singers and Levites. Those were the priests of those days. How many of you, after moving into your house, made it your number one priority to appoint singers all around your home? Nehemiah shows his priorities here. What good is a secure facility if we're not praising God in it? Sometimes even today, churches can get so caught up with the external that they forget why they're doing what they're doing. They forget to praise the Lord. They forget to do the work of ministry. We can get lost focusing on numbers and on procedures and making sure the building is perfect and we forget why we exist as a church. Now, procedures and planning and beautifying the building, those are all important things, but they are all a means to an end, and we must not forget that end. We are here to bring glory to God. 
That's why we exist as a church. We exist to advance the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. And through that, it brings glory to God. Nehemiah never loses his focus. He appoints singers and Levites to lead the people in worship. Notice even how he chooses his leaders. He picks Hananiah because Hananiah was a faithful man and feared God more than many. All churches would do well to recognize that as the greatest possible quality for any qualified ministry candidate. Are they faithful and do they fear God? Those are the most important things here. I mean, it's important that we have elders that have leadership abilities, that maybe they have some financial background, they have some business knowledge. Those things are not irrelevant in ministry. But what's most important is that they are faithful and they fear God. If they don't have those two things, it does not matter what their business background is or how many people they manage at work or how they dress on a Sunday. If they aren't faithful, God-fearing men, then they are not qualified for ministry. The same is true for any area of ministry. We want people qualified to serve with our children. But more important than your educational background is your heart for God. Are you faithful and do you fear your Lord? Do you keep his commandments and walk after him? Do you pursue him with your whole heart? So Nehemiah has his priorities straight. He appoints faithful and godly leaders to oversee Jerusalem. And then verse 5 begins the transition to the next part of this chapter. Look at verse 5. This is your last easy verse in this chapter. He says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record. So the wall is built, the temple is up and running, and now Nehemiah notices that the city's population needs a bit of a boost. So his heart is stirred up. He wants to take a head count and see exactly who is here and who is not. So he gathers the nobles and the officials and all the people to take a census. But as he's doing that, he comes across this list of the first group of people who returned from exile. Nehemiah finds Ezra chapter 2. He finds that same list. And what we see here is that the rest of this chapter repeats the exact list of returned exiles from Ezra chapter 2. Now because the Bible repeats this list, I think it's important that we read it again here. God could have said, verse 5, Nehemiah found the, the book of the first returned exiles. Verse 6, it was the same list that you saw already moving on to chapter 8. Right? I mean, he could, he could have done that. But instead, what God does is he repeats the entire list for us. Because God finds it important enough to put it in here twice, I find it important enough for us to read it again. If we truly believe that all scripture is God-breathed, and useful for teaching and preaching and training in righteousness, then we cannot just skim or skip through this section. We read it and we think deeply about how this applies to our lives. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read down this list to the very end of the chapter. On the screen, instead of putting all those verses there, I'm going to leave up there an outline of the chapter. That way you know which group of names I'm reading as I read them. And after I'm done reading all the names, we're going to take a few minutes to reflect on why we have this list in our Bible for a second time. Let's start in verse 6. 
These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city, who came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Rehemiah, Nehemani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Baena, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parish, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Ara, 652, the sons of Pehath Moab, of the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,818, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 845, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Benui, 648, the sons of Bibai, 628, the sons of Asgad, 2,322, the sons of Adonikam, 667, the sons of Bigvi, 2,067, the sons of Aden, 655, the sons of Atur of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Hashum, 328, the sons of Bazai, 324, the sons of Harif, 112, the sons of Gibeon, 95, the men of Bethlehem and Nedephah, 188, the men of Anathoth, 128, the men of Beth Asmaveth, 42, the men of Kiriath Jerim, Chephira um, and Biroth, 743. The men of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmash, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 123. The men of the other Nebo, 52. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The men of Jericho, 345. The sons of Lod, Hadad, and, oh no, 721. The sons of Sinea, 3,930. Verse 39. The priests, the sons of Jediah, the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. Verse 43. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua, of Cadmiel, of the sons of Hadavet, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. The gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmud, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hatida, the sons of Shobai, 138. Verse 46. The temple servants, the sons of Zihad, the sons of Hashufa, the sons of Tebeoth, the sons of Keros, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Shalmai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Rea, the sons of Reason, the sons of Nekoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paseah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Menuhim, the sons of Nephushimin, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basileth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkas, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Timah, the sons of Neziah, the sons of Hatifa. Verse 57. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Perida, the sons of Jaela, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth Hazibim, the sons of Ammon. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. Verse 61. These were those who came from Tel Meleh, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Adon, and Emer, but they could not show their father's houses or their descendants, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite and was named after them. These searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. The governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with Urim and Thummim. Verse 66. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and their female servants, of whom there were 7,337, 
And they had 245 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, their donkeys 6,720. Some from among the heads of the father's households gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, 530 priest garments. Some of the heads of the father's households gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,200 silver minus. That which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 silver minus and 67 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the, the temple servants and Israel and all Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. Now I understand that might not be the most exciting passage of all scripture. I get that. And that's okay. Um, I, I would really, I pray that somebody at some point though will name one of their kids, oh no, because I think that's just a great biblical name that you could use at some point when you're naming your kid. But this passage is here for a reason, right? What is that reason? Why is this passage in scripture? Now first, I'm going to point out again, this list is basically a replica of the list that we saw in Ezra chapter 2. There are a few minor differences between them. Most of those differences are an alternate spelling of someone's name, sometimes even a difference in some of the census numbers. Let me give you an example up on the screen here. Ezra 2.10 says the sons of Bani, 642, and the parallel passage in Nehemiah 7.15 says the sons of Benui, 648. Now you can see how Bani might be spelled Benui. There's a clear relationship there. Like my brother's name is William, but we call him Bill. So that makes sense. Could have been a nickname or something like that. The difference in the numbers is a little bit more difficult to explain, but those differences are probably explained by simple scribal errors. Keep in mind that they didn't have copy machines back then. Everything they did had to be written by hand. Can you imagine writing this list by hand and copying it and sending it down from generation to generation? Ezra 2 might have been the master copy, the original list, and Nehemiah might have been working from a copy of the copy of the original. But clearly, whoever edited Ezra and Nehemiah together, the, the inspired editor of this whole text, could have made sure that both lists matched exactly if he wanted to. I'm sure he noticed that there were some differences. But the fact that the inspired editor didn't match up both lists tells us something. It actually speaks to the authenticity of Scripture, the historical value of what we're reading. Nehemiah preferred to copy the list he had exactly, differences and all, rather than to edit these lists and make sure that they matched exactly. Now, either way, the lists are substantially the same thing. They follow the same outline. They list the same families. They arrive at the same totals. It's the same list. Now, that brings us back to the question of why. Why? Why put such a long list of names in the Bible twice within the same unit of books? Think about what Nehemiah is doing. The walls are built. The city is underpopulated. There's not enough people to fill the houses. So he calls together the people for a census. Now you might remember when I preached Ezra 2, I said there that the text demonstrates that the faithfulness of God motivates the faithfulness of his people. God showed himself faithful by allowing the Israelites to return to their homeland with all the items from the temple that were stolen from them. That was Ezra 2. 
God showed himself faithful by stirring up the hearts of the people to, to motivate them to go and do something outrageously difficult by leaving their place of comfort and going into that new promised land. The faithfulness of God motivated the faithfulness of the people. Now here in Nehemiah 7, Nehemiah finds that same list and he includes it here in this story. Nehemiah believes that the future task of populating the city is going to be founded upon the past task of populating the city. In other words, God brought those exiles back and did what he said he would do in the past. And therefore, Nehemiah is confident that God is going to continue to do a good work in the future. Let me put it another way. The list of past returning exiles encouraged Nehemiah in his present context and gave him hope for his future. God's past faithfulness provides present comfort and future hope. Let me put this into perspective for you. Nehemiah is doing exactly what we are doing today. He's looking at an ancient list from the past, and he's applying that ancient list to his own day. He is encouraging and inspiring others to remember that the past faithfulness of God was there in order to comfort their present day anxieties about living in this city and giving them hope for the future. He looks at an ancient list and applies it to his own day. That is exactly what we are doing this Sunday morning here. Now, we don't have a city to repopulate, but that ancient list still functions in a similar way for us. When we look back and see God's hand of faithfulness in the past, that tells us that we can trust in God's faithfulness in the future, and that relieves any fears that we have in our present day. Let me give you a few modern day examples of this, and hopefully this will help put this into actual concrete application. One thing I was working on this week was revising our membership class booklet. Uh, right now, we have over a dozen people meeting for membership. Right now, like literally as we speak. Praise God. That's great. So over the next couple of weeks, we'll have some new members meeting or, or potential new members meeting and, and looking over that. So I was revising our membership booklet and I had an opportunity to read through a couple of documents that outline the history of Riverstone Church. Riverstone began in what year? Does anyone know? 1981. A small gathering of four families who desired to see the Lord's work in their community in New Jersey, four families gathered over 40, 40 years ago. When they were there, they were meeting, and at some point there were too many people to keep on meeting in a home. So the Lord provided the Union Fire Company in Titusville, New Jersey for a place to meet. Within a year of that, the Lord provided the first full-time lead pastor, Jay Button, who served here for over 20 years at this church. When more people started coming from Pennsylvania than New Jersey, the Lord provided a place in Pennsylvania, Newtown, Pennsylvania, for them to meet. And when that place was too small for the growing church to meet their needs, the Lord provided this property right here, which eventually opened up its doors in the year 2000. Do you notice a pattern with that brief history? The Lord provided, the Lord provided, the Lord provided, the Lord provided. Over and over again. You know what that tells me? By looking at our past and seeing how the Lord has provided for us in our past, we can have confidence 
that moving forward, the Lord is going to provide in our future. If we start to outgrow this facility, Lord willing, one day, you know what I'm confident of? The Lord's going to provide. If there are leadership needs, you know what I'm confident of? The Lord is going to provide. God has been perfectly faithful in the past. And we can have confidence that because of that past perfect faithfulness, God will have future perfect faithfulness as well. And that gives us a greater trust in him in our present day. Do you see how this passage works now? Let me give you another example of this. This week, I also had a chance to look through our list of active members. As I was looking through the membership booklet, I had a list of active members. And, and it's a list of well over 300 names of people who have committed to membership here in this local church. And what was interesting was on that list, there was a, a column that told me how long people had been members. So when did they start in their membership? And you know what I noticed? I noticed evidence of God's work extending back 40 years. I saw names on that list like Mitch and Lori Telsey, who became members in 1992, 31 years ago. Still here, praise the Lord. I saw names like Glenn and Mary Sutton, who became members in 1990, 33 years ago. Still here, praise the Lord. I saw a name on that list, Darlene Rosina, one of the founding members, 1981, over 40 years ago, still here. Praise God for his faithfulness at work among his people. Isn't that awesome? Now, hopefully hearing a list like that will encourage you in your faithfulness and your commitment to the church. If, you've already, if you already are a member here, I want you to consider what it takes to stay in a single church for 30 to 40 years. What kind of commitment does that look like? 30 to 40 years. I'm sure that during the last three to four decades of this church, I don't know those people very well. I've met a few of them. But I'm sure that during the last three to four decades of them being here, something must have happened that those members didn't agree with. And yet they stayed. I'm sure that during the last three to four decades that they were here, there were disagreements with other members. And yet they stayed. I'm sure that there were times when the grass looked greener in other churches during those years. And yet they stayed. May their faithfulness motivate and encourage our own. If you're not a member yet, I'd encourage you to consider it. We started a membership class today, as I mentioned. It's not too late to join. You could jump in next week. I believe in the importance of committing to a local church for membership. Even though the Bible doesn't use that term, membership, it does talk about people who are kept on lists within churches, people who are considered part of a local congregation and people who are not. It talks about submitting yourself to local leadership. It talks about uh, using your spiritual gifts for the common good. And all of those things is what church membership is all about. So I'd encourage you to start praying about it. Ask the Lord whether he would stir up your heart to commit to church here. The list of names in Nehemiah 7 was not a list of church members, but it was a list of returned exiles that decided to commit to one another and commit to the Lord as a group. Members in the so-called Church of Israel, if you want to use that term in that way. This list must have motivated the second and the third wave of returnees in Nehemiah's day. And perhaps our present list of members would motivate you as well. Now, one final example for us. 
This morning, we participated in the Lord's table, communion. What is communion? Well, Pastor Jeremy explained it very well. It's an ordinance from God where we look to the past, we look to the future, and we are encouraged in our present day worship. We look to the past and we reflect on Christ's sacrifice for us. We consider his body broken for us. We consider his blood that was spilled out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. We consider the gospel and our redemption. Because of his sacrifice on the cross, because of his resurrection, we can place our faith in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And we have a relationship with God. That's the gospel. In taking the elements, there's not only that past look, but there's also a forward-looking aspect of it as well. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice those words, until he comes. In other words, as we're reflecting on the past and what Christ has done for us, we are also at the same time anticipating the future and his return. That's what we're doing as we take communion. It's the greatest of all anticipations for a believer. Jesus Christ is coming back. How do I know? Because God did everything else he said he would do in the past. And when we reflect on that and we see what God has done in the past, we can be certain that God will continue to do what he says he'll do in the future. And all of that, past and future, gives us present-day confidence and hope in our Savior. We live as Christians in the reality of the gospel. We live in light of what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we live in confident expectation for what he will one day do for us in the future. Jesus will resurrect his dead saints. He will return in the same way that he came. These are promises he's made for us. The past and future changes the way that we perceive our present. My day today is going to look different in light of what Christ did on the cross and in light of his expected future coming. And I think that's similar to what Nehemiah is doing in chapter 7. Here's what God has done in the past. This should motivate us to do what he's said to do in the future. And this should change the way that we live right now in our present. Just as Nehemiah picked up a dusty list of names, blew that dust off, and recounted God's faithfulness, listed all those names, here are the people that God brought to us, we too can look to the past our local church is past, the church global, our universal church is past, and we can see evidence of God's faithfulness. God's past faithfulness provides present comfort and future hope for his church. That's what Nehemiah 7 is all about. Let me take a moment and pray for us. And as I do, I'm going to ask if there are any elders in the room, if you can come on forward. And our elders are going to stand up here and they're going to provide opportunity for you to come to pray with them. If you have anything that's on your heart that the Lord is burdening you with, if you want any encouragement, if you have, if you have something that you need to share, they'll be up here ready to receive you. Let's take a moment and pray and thank the Lord for his faithfulness and ask for his grace in our present and in our future. God, you are a faithful God. You are a God who not only says, here's what we ought to do, but you have shown us how to do it through means of your son. Lord, I pray that as we reflect on the cross, as we reflect on what Christ has done for us in communion, 
you would motivate us to live differently today. As we think about your future coming, I pray that you would stir up our hearts that we might live differently today in light of it. Father, I pray that our priorities, I pray that our passions, I pray that every action of our lives is changed in light of the reality of the gospel and your coming return. Lord, may you do a great work in this church. We are confident that you will because you have in the past. Praise you, Lord, for over 40 years of faithful ministry here. And I pray for many, many more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless.